pharmakeia, such arts are called, for they deal in pharmaca, those herbs with the power to work changes upon the world, both those sprung from the blood of the gods, as well as those which grow common upon the earth. It is a gift to be able to draw out their powers, and I am not alone in possessing it. Circe by Madeline Miller. Hello, witches, women, and other magical listeners. I'm Hannah, the bipolar bisexual host of this bi-weekly podcast of Witches and Women. Welcome to season two. Season two. Season two. Season two. Season two. <laughs> Welcome to season two. I didn't know we would get here. Whew, glad we did. <laughs> Of Witches and Women is a Her Story podcast in which I explore the lives and histories of women forgotten, ignored, and misrepresented for too long. This season of the podcast will include interviews with amazing women in medicine today, as well as the stories of women who made medicine in the beginning and who have been improving it along the way. Interestingly, women healers have historically been the first to be labeled as witches and the first to be oppressed, tortured, killed, and used by men in power. Their stories are hard to uncover and many have been lost forever. This season, we're trying to uncover our magical legacy and embracing our history of witchcraft, confidence, and strength. Be sure you and your coven are subscribed to the pod on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and connect with your sisters through Of Witches and Women on Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, or Facebook. In the exciting new stuff department, both the Of Witches and Women shop and the Grimoire Gallery have been updated with new merchandise and artwork reflective of our new season theme. Go to ofwitchesandwomen.com to visit the shop where you'll find custom magical merchandise. Lots of new merchandise is limited edition, of course, so get it soon. This season, in light of our theme of witches and women in medicine and the global pandemic that we are all experiencing together and apart, proceeds from every purchase of the Witches Made Medicine limited edition t-shirt and stickers will be donated to a nonprofit that we will research and choose together later in the season. So make sure that we're connected on social media so you can help make that choice. And once you have your swag, be sure to check out the Grimoire Gallery, our internet gallery curated by today's working artists and featuring art about witches and women in medicine. If you see something you like in the Grimoire Gallery, you can link to the artist portfolio site to see, share, or purchase more of their work. My show notes are also on the Of Witches and Women website, found in the Lamia Library. And you can, of course, stream episodes directly from the Lamia Library. Finally, while you're on ofwitchesandwomen.com, please subscribe to my newsletter, The Oracle, at the bottom of any page. Just scroll down and add your email address. The bi-weekly Oracle will start up again next month, and it will continue to tell the shorter, more obscure stories we won't get to cover on the show, share biographies of our grimoire gallery artists, and have other exclusive content. This season of the Of Witches and Women podcast is sponsored by Lua Ray Clothing. 
Lua Ray Clothing is an online boutique stocked with high-quality women's clothing that is flattering, comfortable, current, and inclusive. My favorite piece this October is their beautiful black velvet dress, the Mariah, which is beautiful, versatile, and breastfeeding friendly. They have beautiful pieces for all kinds of witches at Lua Ray, including the Penelope, a purple floral maxi dress, and in honor of this episode, they'll have a new piece up soon, the Millie Blouse, a bold black top with sheer sleeves named in honor of an ancient Anglo-Saxon witch named Mildred, whose story I will share today. Visit Luaray, that's L-U-A-R-A-E dot com today to shop their current collection and use the promo code WITCHES15 at checkout for a 15% discount. That's just for you, my witchlings. Just for you. Philippus, Aurelius, Theophrastus, Bombastus von Honenheim, or as he christened himself, Paracelsus, was a medical scholar in the early 1500s. He was a pioneer in medicine during the medical revolution of the Renaissance. Paracelsus began as an army doctor and observed that keeping wounds clean and dry was more effective than covering them in mud and poultices in order to keep infection away. Woohoo! After the war, he went on to study and then teach medicine across Europe. He studied chemistry and is credited with repopularizing laudanum in Europe, a heavy, all-encompassing opiate tincture that continued to rise in popularity well into the 1900s before it was heavily regulated in Europe and the Americas. While an effective painkiller, laudanum is highly addictive and was a popular suicide method throughout the 1800s. Paracelsus is also one of the first to observe hydrogen and he named the element zinc. As a teacher, he was highly unusual in that he invited dentists, barbers, and butchers to attend his lectures. These professions were the surgeons of the time, but because they were poor and considered dirty and unclean, they were not welcome in lecture halls and did not have degrees in medicine or science or anything beyond a rudimentary understanding of male anatomy really. But they did the surgeries and operations. Paracelsus insisted that men of these professions be allowed in his lectures on chemistry and anatomy. He was one of the first intellectuals to argue that medicine was a practice on the body, not just an exercise in philosophy or a balance of the humors. In Paracelsus' time, witches were an easy target in Europe for public discontent. Witch hunting had been prevalent for many years, and it would get worse before it got better. While not always the case, many accused witches were actually poor midwives and healers. With their generational knowledge of herbs and anatomy passed down, the cunning women of the British Isles were the most accomplished healers available. However, they were the least formally educated and the most suppressed class of people. Because of the pagan roots of the poor Anglo-Saxons who relied on these village healers, the powerful and dominant Christian leaders probably saw a lot of strategic value in linking tenuous medical practices with devil worship, 
So, in the case of infection or calamity, it would be easy to blame a village witch for working with the devil against Christianity. This approach unified the poor and uneducated in a common religion, stomped out older pagan traditions quite effectively, turned neighbor against neighbor, and allowed upper-class men to take hold of the healthcare narrative. It's hard to blame Eve for all the pain of childbirth and the sin that comes along with it when her daughters know how to mix the contraceptive teas, they're the ones in the birth room comforting the mother, they're delivering the children, they're purging infection. It's a lot easier to convince people of God's unknowability and omniscience when the doctors and physicians in charge are men with little anatomical knowledge and no practical experience. This pattern is easy to see throughout history and frightening to identify repeating itself today. Speaking of which, please vote. Please make a plan right now. Turn off this episode, make a plan, vote. Get your ballot, fill it out, send it back in. It's incredibly important. Paracelsus was not a well healthy man himself. He was incredibly volatile. He fought and argued with his peers and superiors, was kicked out of colleges. He was really dismissive of his lessers, and most importantly and least discussed by historians, he stole his foundational understanding of chemistry and anatomy from women. Paracelsus may have been a decent observer, a decent surgeon, whatevs, but the vast majority of his medical foundation practices he claimed as his own ideas were used by midwives for centuries before Paracelsus. He was smart enough to recognize the value and knowledge held by the cunning women that his peers dismissed as witches, and he was smart enough to listen to them and read their grimoires and watch them mix poultices that could clean up infections, slow bleeding, lower fever, and minimize pain but he couldn't be bothered to stand up for them, and when they were tried and executed for witchcraft, or rather for practicing the same science that brought him fame and money, he was nowhere to be found. Importantly, wise women understood anatomy far better than the most learned Oxford lecturers of the time. It was of course improper for educated men to understand women's bodies, or to get their hands dirty with healing practices. The only practices that should dirty your hands, of course, are warfare and death. And it was heretical to dissect cadavers, meaning they had no scientific way to progress. Through witches willing to tutor him, Paracelsus learned about bones, muscles, and anatomy. It was witches who have always known that cures for the body come from the body and the earth, not astrology or fate and they taught this to Paracelsus. They taught him enough to become a successful battle surgeon, but seeking his own glory, Paracelsus stole their knowledge, repackaged it as his own discoveries and brilliance. He was willing to teach the barbers and the dentists about anatomy, but not willing to disclose his own sources. Paracelsus publicly burned the works of Galen and other Greek physicians, book burning, never good, because he knew, thanks to the witches, that the humors and astrology linked to the body were not relevant to healing. But his willingness to burn the masters in public makes me wonder what works he burned in private.
What medical knowledge did we lose in the grimoires that Paracelsus stole from? Where are the grimoires? Where are the witches? Who are the real women physicians and scientists that made Paracelsus rise to fame possible? Late in his life, Paracelsus admitted that he stole much of his pharmacaea from cunning women, calling them sorceresses. But that's barely a footnote in his history. For centuries, Paracelsus was hailed as a great prophet and healer. His knowledge of pharmacaea did change Western narcotics forever, but by his own admittance, it was never his knowledge, was it? While he was white enough, male enough, loud enough, he was more than loud enough, <laughs> and rich enough to cause an international splash, it was the women he stole from who went about saving lives and selflessly helping their sisters every day for thousands of years that made the real difference. Sadly, the story of Paracelsus, which should not be Paracelsus' story at all, is not unique. For millennia, men in power have determined that the power over life and health that witches and women wield should belong to men. Last season, I told the story of Agnotiki, possibly the first known female doctor. She was a midwife who disguised herself as a man to go to medical school then utilized her talents to save countless women and babies. She was discovered and sentenced to die by the Greek Senate, but they were forced to pardon her by their wives, many of whom owed their friend and doctor, Agnotiki, a life debt. She was one of many women who were punished for trying to learn what men knew of medicine, but historically, Men have consistently taken women's knowledge of medicine and claimed it as their own without account, profiting off of it by controlling people's health and socioeconomic status through medical information and treatment. The people who reap the consequences for these men's actions? Women, babies, the poor, and minorities. A few centuries before Paracelsus, in medieval Britain, several healing books, including Bald's Leech Book Three and Lacunga, were commissioned by the Catholic Church and written by some monks. Their primary sources? The Witches of the British Isles and their Grimoires. Today, I'll tell the story of Mildred, an Anglo-Saxon witch from Bidford-on-Avon who practiced in the 6th century. Much like the unnamed witches who informed Paracelsus' medical theories and practices, Mildred's prolific spells, charms, and poultices are almost certainly a large portion of the cures and rituals passed down and later recorded for deification and Christian use in Bald's Leech Book 3, Lacunga, and others. Mildred, whose name means kingly and wise, died between 18 and 24 years old. But there's no doubt that in her short life, she made a big difference in the lives of those around her. She is buried in a quite extravagant tomb for her time and place, surrounded by her medical tools. She lived in one of hundreds of small farming communities of pre-medieval Britain. Interestingly, the simple, harsh, hand-to-mouth existence meant that everyone in the villages worked and worried to farm food and put it on a table. That was everybody's full-time job. The only exception was the cunning woman. 
cunning women practiced medicine, midwifery, and healing. Rather than raise their own crops and livestock, they traded their services for the goods they needed to survive and continue practicing medicine and even thrive. It appears that Mildred thrived as she was buried in a lavish robe and ornate jewelry. She was esteemed in life, possibly a spiritual leader as well as a healer, and definitely in touch with pagan healing and worship practices. Mildred and other women like her used the herbs of the region to create poultices and medicines and teas. Meanwhile, the educated male doctors located near trading hubs studied Mediterranean medicine and ancient Greek healing theories. While some of these distant and exotic tinctures were effective, they were impossible for poor villagers to access a continent and a channel away. So, cunning women's ability to use the local plant life to create pharmaca, or medicine, was vital to minimizing infections and death. Interestingly, pharmaca is the ancient Greek word for drugs and also intones medicine, witchcraft, and poison. Pharmakeia referred to the practice of medicine and of witchcraft. In Mildred's time, there was little to no difference between magic and medicine, and it was not until science began to progress and crusades against the people of the much further advanced Middle East that Europeans began to distinguish a difference between science and magic. It was during this time that alchemists began to become prevalent as some of the first recognized and distinguished scientists of the Renaissance. As the Catholic Church became bigger and stronger, that differentiation between science and magic became more important. It was as Catholicism increased its stronghold in Northern Europe and Britain that Mildred and her ancestors' spells were acquired by Catholic monks and were altered to incorporate Christian prayers and symbolism. Over the centuries, people began to separate good witches and bad witches. While little evidence exists for bad witches, especially as widespread practice or belief, they were used as a straw man by the Catholic and Protestant churches to vilify pagan beliefs. It's hard to hate the woman next door when she cleaned your cut so you didn't die of infection, saved your wife when she gave birth to the baby in a breech position, and has a tea that soothes your child's fevers. But by creating the propaganda of the evil witch who will dance with the devil and curse your crops and babies, religious and political leaders created an effective scare tactic. The added benefit was that the enemy was not France or Scotland, the enemy was an individual, poor, unconnected, and one good deed away from proving her guilt by failing to save a life. She was guilty no matter her beliefs, no matter her associations, it was only a matter of time. The evil witch created an otherness and distrust of the pagan history of the regional lower classes. So effective was this campaign against Eve's wicked sisters that by the 1500s any pagan practitioners were considered evil, automatically, and most had been generationally wiped from existence. Now, with the acceptance of science and Greek-influenced medical practice, as well as the indoctrination against these so-called witches, the stage was set to condemn any and all who dared disagree with the church 
or with their more powerful neighbors. They were witches, good, bad, or ugly. It didn't matter. All were guilty and many were sentenced to eternal and immediate torment. Protestant minister William Perkins would say that while there were practitioners of healing magic or white magic, as well as dark magic or infliction, both types of practitioners were devil worshipers. In fact, he said, quote, of the two, the more horrible and detestable monster is the good witch, which are better known than the bad, being commonly called wise women or wise men. I'd like him to explain that whole wise men thing to uh, Saint Luke, perhaps? So, while the people lived, thanks to the discoveries of the witches who came before them, they burned the ones who lived among them. But women, pagan and Christian, continued to pass down remedies from mother to daughter. Mildred was a respected, necessary part of her community. Many generations later, her daughters were no longer respected, but just as necessary to keep society functioning. Today, with progressions in science, we recognize that the witches' powers were real. We may or may not believe in their divinity, but evidence of herbs that soothe fever, fight infection, and slow bleeding is absolute. From the pharmacaea of old comes the pharmacy of today. Furthermore, we know now that addiction, pain, and even some forms of degenerative illness are decreased by community and camaraderie. We know that blue zones full of people who live to very old ages have strong sense of community and family bonds. Mildred performed more than just functional medicine in her village. She performed a social service. She was a companion, a watchwoman, a friend, a nurse, and a spiritual leader. As a practitioner of science, psychology, and the placebo effect, and maybe even magic, Mildred the Cunning Woman was a true and powerful witch. Thanks to a super kind and thoughtful letter from one of my listeners, I've decided to bring back spells at the end of each episode this season. Whether you believe in magic in a traditional sense or in a spiritual sense, or if you just appreciate taking a moment to pause and mindfully act or meditate, I invite you to take what you will from these last moments we share together at the end of each episode. Well before science proved the truth of their wisdom, ancient witches knew that honey was a powerful and nutritious substance. Honey has been proven to contain antioxidant, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory properties. It's also a whole food, meaning it has all the nutrients necessary to sustain human life. For millennia, witches have harvested and eaten raw honey. They have also used it in poultices and salves to stave off infection and help heal wounds faster. If you have a small scrape or a mild burn at home, Try honey as a form of topical relief instead of Neosporin or Vaseline. To do so, use clean hands to dab pure raw honey onto your clean wound a few times a day until new skin forms. What is raw honey? Why is this important? Well, raw honey is exactly what it sounds like. Honey straight from the source that has not been pasteurized, diluted, or had any ingredients added to it. No water, no sugar, no flavors. Here's a pro tip. 
Raw honey never spoils. They found it in pyramids 3,000 years later, totally edible. And the FDA does not require you to put a list of ingredients on it since the only ingredient is honey. So when you're shopping for honey, get the bottle without added ingredients and no expiration date. Bonus points if you buy local honey as it encourages local bee preservation and helps soothe seasonal allergies. Back to healing. Of course, don't put it on puncture wounds, deep cuts, abscesses, serious burns, and infected wounds until you've heard from a medical professional. You can also use honey as the base for a gentle skin scrub. To make a scrub, combine two tablespoons raw honey, one third cup sugar, and one tablespoon of olive oil. You can also add a little pinch of cinnamon or one to three drops of an essential oil of your choice, depending on how you want to enhance your scrub. Try lavender for spiritual or magical enhancement, rosemary for beauty and confidence, or eucalyptus for healing and protection. Once combined, gently rub onto your face in small circles. This is a good time to reflect. There's power in our thoughts and our inner dialogue. Intentionally evaluate yours as you take this moment to take care of yourself. Then rinse off the scrub with lukewarm water and wipe off your face gently with a cotton ball soaked in witch hazel before moisturizing. Ta-da! Store your scrub in the refrigerator and use it all within a few months of mixing because it's all fresh, real ingredients. That's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure you and your coven are subscribed to Of Witches and Women on Apple, Google, or Spotify. And please write me a magical review on your podcast app so others can find and enjoy the show as well. Connect to me and the pod on social media and look up ofwitchesandwomen.com for even more great content and to subscribe to The Oracle. Stay fierce, witches, and I'll catch you next time. Of Witches and Women is brought to you by SHH Media, LLC.